Welcome to Neil Oliver Live, the podcast of my show on GB News. You can catch me live every Saturday evening from 7 till 9, but don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show each week. So let's do it. Neil Oliver Live. Anyone remember voting for the World Health Organisation to take control of our lives? No, me neither. And yet here we are teetering on the brink of joining most of the countries of the world in surrendering our, nas- surrendering our national sovereignty under the terms of a proposed new pandemic treaty. Once British ink is dry on the necessary paperwork, we and most of the rest of the billions living on planet Earth will, in the event of another pandemic, take our instructions not from politicians we actually voted for and could hypothetically at least have the option of getting rid of, but from the unelected, faceless bureaucrats of the WHO. This is no conspiracy theory, by the way. No tin hats required. This is real and happening now. And a whole lot of people would rather you weren't paying attention. The WHO is a fabulously wealthy offshoot of the United Nations. It has its head office in Geneva and is presently headed by Ethiopian-born Tedros Adamnon Ghebreyesus. Know much about him? No, nor me. He and it are funded by 194 member states and also by donations from private entities. As things stand, most of its money comes from the United States of America, from communist China, and from computer salesman and international man of mystery Bill Gates. Let us remember that for the past two years, the WHO has loudly celebrated the approach taken by China to the handling of COVID-19. Even now, as tens or perhaps hundreds of millions of Chinese citizens remain locked in their homes in scores of cities across that country, and after unknown numbers have died in those circumstances, including some who committed suicide by leaping to their deaths from their tower block imprisonment, the WHO continues to applaud the tactics of the Chinese Communist Party that is its benefactor. For his own part, Bill Gates, who struggles even to control viruses in the software sold by Microsoft, is on record admiring the draconian approach taken by Australia to the extent that he has said that, in his opinion, the world would have had greater success in eliminating the disease, the one that more than likely leaked from a lab in China, if only more nations had followed the Australian model, locked everyone down and sought zero Covid. Now we in Great Britain, without so much as a buy-your-leave from our leaders, and along with around 95% of the world's population, must contemplate a future in which decisions about what we will be ordered, ordered to do in the face of another pandemic, will be taken by the unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats of the Chinese Communist Party worshipping WHO, under the unseemly influence of a tech billionaire with no more qualifications in the fields of medicine and disease control than I have. It's worth remembering that President Donald Trump insisted on divorce from the WHO on the grounds that it was too close to China, only for President Biden to remarry them again in 2021. All of that is history, however. In a matter of days, the World Health Assembly will meet in Geneva for a vote on the treaty. The target date for final ratification is in May 2024, but by then the power grab will have long been completed. Amendments written into the proposed treaty by the re-enamoured Biden administration will see 194 nations cede sovereignty over national health care decisions to the WHO. The WHO would thereby have decision-making power over and above our own government and every other government. Consider this. When you watch footage of the 26 million people of Shanghai locked down in their homes, 
their cats and dogs beaten to death in the street. The WHO would, by the terms of the new treaty, have the power to impose the same on cities here. Know too that under the terms of the treaty, the WHO does not, does not have to show any data to legitimise its conclusions or decisions. It's also worth knowing, to say the least, that it would be up to the WHO to define what the next pandemic is, seeing how things are going. I would hardly be surprised to hear about a pandemic of obesity or of heart attacks, followed by the lockdowns and other restrictions to deal with same. No doubt lockdowns to fix the climate can't be far away either. In the case of climate, the WHO might draw the conclusion that we, the human species, are the virus. Who knows what they might conclude and decide then? Be in no doubt, this so-called pandemic treaty is the single greatest global power grab that any of us has seen in our lifetime. It's nothing less than the groundwork, the laying of deep foundations for global governance through the WHO. Many of those opposed to the treaty, and there is an online petition here in the UK seeking to demand that the matter be discussed in Parliament, have pointed to the, shall we say, compromised position of the WHO itself. Much has been made of the notion that a fish rots from the head. Back in 2017, Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe was appointed as a goodwill ambassador of the WHO by Tedros and only dropped after shrieks of outrage from those who pointed out that Mugabe might have been a controversial choice of poster boy for an organisation notionally committed to the well-being of living people. A glance at the 34-member executive board of the WHO reveals seats occupied by such human rights luminaries as Syria and East Timor, among others. And remember all the time the links the WHO has with communist China, a state with more human rights abuses under its belt than any decent human being might want to contemplate. And that's before we get to the looming presence of the world's fourth, or is it second, richest man, the one and only Bill Gates and his foundation, whose commitment to mass vaccination is unsurpassed. As far as I'm concerned, the whole thing stinks like the aforementioned dead fish. The approach taken to COVID by the Chinese government and endorsed by the WHO was never about health, I say, and always about control. Just as there is more than one way to skin a cat, one beaten to death in a Shanghai street by a man in a hazmat suit armed with a stick, perhaps, so there is more than one way to seek to impose undemocratic authoritarian control upon a population. Just as a, for instance, a government desiring such control might try frightening the living daylights out of its people telling them that if they don't take their medicine, medicine that Big Pharma knows in advance might kill or maim some of them, that they won't be able to travel, leave the country, go to work or the pub or the cinema or to school. A government or indeed any unelected body seeking total control might tell its people that unless they do what they're told, they won't ever be getting back to anything even resembling their old normal lives. That's not how you protect people from a pandemic. That's how you exploit and manipulate the very notion of a pandemic in order to seize and retain control. And then, while they're either still terrified or just plain exhausted and demoralised by the whole damned experience, why not slip through all manner of new legislation shaped to mop up the dregs of whatever old-fashioned freedoms and rights remain behind? I am, even by my own estimate, the unlikeliest of rebels. All I know is that I have, for a period now, measurable in years, been opposed to those in power here, and also all but a handful of those vying to replace them. For the longest time, I've cared not a jot what those jokers try and tell me to do. The evidence coming out now about lockdown harms, about vaccine harms, tells me I was right to follow my own path. In short, I've had enough of the lot of them. They don't speak for me, or in any way matter to me. If this pandemic treaty comes to pass, I will disregard it. 
I'll ignore any future lockdown ordained by any power. I'll take no mandated vaccine, not while I have breath in my body. The WHO and all its little wizards can take a running jump. The men in suits can sign whatever treaties they want. I don't care. Not one of them, not Johnson, not Trudeau, not Macron and the rest, has the stomach for the wet work that would be required to put their authoritarian plans into action. We owe it to ourselves, perhaps we even owe it to them, to tell them that they're living in a fantasy world of their own creation and that we want none of it. Let them have the gall to seek to sign away our freedoms in such a high-handed manner this month or in 2024. I, for one, am not playing along. As Patrick McGowan's character said in The Prisoner, I'm not a number, I'm a free man. Now all of that is my opinion, of course, uh, but we like to hear from everyone on this show, so get in touch, tell us what you think on gbviews at gbnews.uk uh, and you can tweet us as well, at gbnews. And if there's time, I'll read out your comments a little later in the show. It's time now to meet my panel, uh, who'll be with me until eight o'clock. I welcome along first to Mo Lovett, a familiar face on this couch. Hi, Neil. A writer, academic and national coordinator for Debating Matters. And making his first appearance on the sofa in this studio uh, is a Keith Prince, Conservative politician and member of the London Assembly. Welcome. Good evening, Thank Neil. You for uh, for, uh, for coming along this evening. It's good to see you both, uh, an old friend and new. Um, am I right, would you say, Mo, to, to fear the prospect of a treaty with the World Health Organization? I think anybody who cares about democracy knows that these international treaties have the potential to chip away at de democratic accountability. You know, in the UK, we have parliamentary sovereignty, which is underpinned, I think, by popular sovereignty as well. It was, it was built, parliamentary sovereignty was kind of conceived within the social contract, which means that governments are kind of responsible to the people and we hold parliament to account. Mm. Um, and so any of these international treaties that kind of uh, chip away at, at that, um, I think we do need to be concerned about if, we're, if we are Democrats. However, um, I think... You know, the gov let's not forget the government's always signing these treaties. You know, there was a COP treaty signed this year. Every two years, you know, they'll sign some of these international treaties. The difference with these kind of um, treaties as compared to, say, when we were in the EU, is that they are not enshrined in UK law. OK, so you said yourself, you know, <laughs> I'll just ignore them. Actually, a government doesn't have to abide by them it doesn't have to even if it's signed up you see this with the with the northern ireland protocol and, and some of the treaties that have been signed so parliament is i think it's it? a little bit i mean i think the other thing that you touched upon in your um in your monologue was the fact that yeah you know, i think we've always had an international class of super rich who have got similar interests i don't think that's particularly new but i think what's be they're becoming very sort of clash conscious they're very aware of themselves as a global elite and so i think what happened in the pandemic as we know fine well because neil ferguson wrote about it in the times you know we looked across at china and thought we could never get away with that and then Italy locked down and we realised we could in the free democratic West get away with that and then of course what happened in Australia and New Zealand and all the rest of it so I think they are very aware through things like Davos and through things like WEF they are very aware of the fact that their interests are aligned I think also the other thing 
I think you referred to some of the leaders as being quite weak, and I think that's right. I think they, they are kind of... They don't have the guts to have these conversations with their own electorate. So these international treaties kind of allow politicians to hide behind them. Oh, I'm sorry, we've, all, we've said that it's going to be net zero by 2024 or whatever it is. Uh, you know, we've already said that, we've committed to that, so we can't have the conversation with our... So they are a bit wet-willed. You know, they are a kind of bit weak and they won't have those conversations. So they are, you know, they are cause for concern, but they're not a foregone conclusion. Keith, you're Conservative. What happened to the notion of Brexit, which, after all, was predicated upon retaining, regaining and valuing sovereignty? Well, I, I totally agree. Surely that's what Brexit was all about, self-determination, us deciding through our own politicians what we did as a nation, especially in a situation like the pandemic, and we saw that when we were in control, we had a much better performance than we ever had, or the Europe ever had. I mean, that was a complete mess. There were some countries like Italy that just were in absolute chaos. So I don't get this. And are we going, therefore, from Brexit to who is it? Because who, H -W -W -H -O, who are they? What are they, as you said? So surely that doesn't make sense that we should jump into bed with with these organisations that have no democratic control whatsoever. So I'm, I'm dead against it, but then as a libertarian, I would be. Mo, it's, I see again, you know, it, it, you, you might see being, being an optimist, I suppose, to, to dismiss it as having the necessary teeth. It is, however, a treaty, and a, the very word reeks of mm. uh, the necessity to abide by its terms if you want to be taken, you know, seriously as a, as a signatory of anything. And why, why on earth, I would say, would we, would we seek to contemplate a treaty with an organisation that was demonstrably so in favour of what was done by China, what is being done by China, which to Western eyes is shocking. I mean, I think one of the things about this particular elite is they're very technocratic. They like their experts. You know, they like their data, as you say. They're not, they're, you know, who wouldn't be obliged to release that data and allow us to interrogate it? And if there's any counter data, we saw what happened with censorship and all the rest of it in the pandemic. They're very technocratic and they like the treaties and they like their laws and they like to kind of stitch things up. But who is the legal body? Who's the judge and jury? That's, if we, if, say, a future Prime Minister of the UK said, I don't care if Boris uh, Johnson signed this treaty, I don't like it. You know, you mentioned Trump and Biden. What if Trump came back or a different libertarian uh, president came back um, and he decided that we know we're not going to listen to and take direction to the WHO. Who is the organisation that enforces that? Because there isn't a court of the World Health Organisation. There isn't a legal judicial body that can enforce it. I still see it as, an, as, a, as a worrying trend. I do too. A worrying trend. Now, a story that's keeping many of us awake at night is that of harms and deaths caused by the COVID vaccines. Given that governmental, scientific and social pressure to get the jab was all but irresistible, news of deaths and injuries resultant from a medical procedure already undertaken by tens of millions of adults and children in this country and by more than four billion people worldwide should surely give us pause for thought. That said, just talking about the side effects already associated with the vaccines is so problematic that the subject is practically taboo. One man who has been putting his head above the parapet in an attempt to clear the air and having it all but shot off as a consequence is GB News' own Mark Stein. Are you there, Mark? That's an honour and a privilege <laughs> to see you there on, on this show, Mark. Thank you for being here. 
My, uh, my pleasure, Neil. It's an honour. Now, together with Dan Wooten, uh, who, who I would also single out here on this channel, you've been turning a light, a bright light, and exposing light on harms and deaths caused by the COVID vaccines. What has the feedback been like? What has it been like leading that charge? Well, the feedback was astonishing. I sort of stumbled into the story accidentally just because, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with COVID is it's all over the map. So you wake up each morning and someone sent you a study from New Zealand and then there's something from Poland and then there's uh, something from Idaho. And then I actually decided I'd look at just the numbers for England and Wales from the UK Health Security Agency. And you realise that whatever is going on, and I don't put it any higher than that, the propaganda of the last couple of years has been just that, propaganda and for the most part lies. You know, and just to go back to what you were saying about the WHO, my own view of this is that if you were played any part in supporting the regime that has prevailed everywhere across the Western world except Sweden and a handful of American states, I don't, I don't want to hear from you. I, I think the last two years has been a disaster. Uh, it's going to make everyone poorer for years to come. It's made an awful lot of people sicker for years to come. It's made a generation of children uh, very underdeveloped for their age, and we're going to be living with those consequences uh, for a generation. And I, I just don't want any of those people having... Uh, the opportunity to impose the last two years on us ever again. Uh, then when I started looking into these numbers uh, and they didn't add up and you realise that everything that the fluffy shows on television, you know, the ones with Philip Schofield and Andrew Neal and all the like, uh, say that, oh, it's an epidemic of the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated shouldn't be allowed to clog up all the hospitals. They shouldn't be allowed to kill granny. Uh, the UK Health Security Agency showed the numbers. By the end of March, 75% of the infected, uh, the people who are actually killing granny, uh, are the triple vaxxed. Um, and then they decided they wouldn't issue those statistics anymore, which seems, again, very odd. But as I said, it's the, it's the complete opposite of what we've been told. Starting around uh, early autumn last year, the double vax and then the third shot ceased to work and actually became the main vectors of spreading the COVID. That's what the numbers show. The fourth shot doesn't work at all. Uh, so we should stop with this horrible, stupid propaganda. You know, the bus sides, these idiotic bus sides that make it seem like it's your patriotic duty as a loyal subject to the you, crown to get however many shots they want to give you. You, you, would think, you would think that by now, seeing what we have seen already, even if it's still up for debate and, and, and in desperate need of further research, that there would be justification for at least pausing and drawing a breath and, and recalibrating everything. But if... There are side effects and risks, however slight, with all new drugs. We know this. But why do you think mm. it's been made so hard, taboo, to mention the risks associated with these particular vaccines? It, it seemed as though there was a necessity to accept that these things were 100% effective and 100% safe. 
And any claim like that about any new medicine, you, you have to question that because it, 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 has no, it has no historical precedent. Why do you think it's been so taboo to talk about these products in just a grown-up fashion? Well, I think it's because the entire expert class, which is another reason I don't want to be governed by the World Health Organization, because my view is that the, actually the experts are not that expert. So I'd rather take my chance with uh, random sociopaths who get into politics and stand under different party labels than, than with inviolable uh, experts uh, where there's no polling station you can go to uh, to vote them out. I think, I think there's never been a situation where everybody from the prime minister down has been telling you, you need to get this particular medical treatment, even if you have no medical need to get it, which basically, you know, nobody under 50 needs to get a vaccine, essentially. If you're in your 50s and you've got a, a potentially potentially unsettling combination of underlying conditions well you might want to you might want to think about it my view is that these things actually don't work and the health outcomes are pretty much what they would have been anyway but it's you're free to take a choice you're free to have a choice uh, it, that you can't really give informed consent when every bus side is telling you to get jabbed uh, when the prime minister and and uh, the, the home secretary and the health secretary and the lord privy seal uh, are all telling you to get jabbed. That's a level of coercion we have never had. And uh, what's particularly disastrous about it is that, if, as people have said explicitly, and Andrew Neil said, oh, it's worked so well, you know, you just have to get jabbed and then you'll be allowed to go and sit in a nice little uh, cafe on the Côte d'Azur and uh, have a cafe au lait. Well, sorry, if you can't get a coffee, if you're getting a medical procedure in order to be able to get on a train, go to a West End show, or get a coffee with Andrew Neil in the south of France, that's, that's, those are not reasons to get a medical procedure. It, and it, it, it's, it fascinates me, more than fascinates me, that, that in, in a world in which disinformation is to be so punished, that there are still clips, for example, uh, you know, President Biden it's still saying from long ago that if you took this any of these products you wouldn't catch covid you wouldn't transmit covid and you certainly wouldn't die of covid now that is yeah <laughs> that is that's disinformation in the context of what we know now and yet nobody comes down on it with anything like the ton of bricks that comes down on, on, on anything else. But what I wanted to ask you as well, you, you've got a long, a, a long career in journalism, a, a lot of experience in, in covering all manner of stories. Uh, have you ever, ex ever seen uh, mass media and, and the rest behaving in this way uh, in relation to any analogous story? Have you, have you, have you seen precedent for this? No, I don't think I have. And what's interesting, I think, is the way uh, individual people, every day you can look at local newspapers uh, around the country and you will find uh, situations where a healthy 47-year-old, he, he gets jabbed and he dies the following day. Or you read absolutely appalling stories like the poor woman who passed out 
from the vaccine while she was bathing her little girl and the little girl died in the bath. There are all these kinds of stories that are reported, or, or then you have these strange ancillary effects. We have so weakened uh, youngsters' immune systems that we're getting this new strain of hepatitis. A, a baby uh, with uh, this new strain of hepatitis, an infant died in Ireland uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, but And so there's ice, oh, this happened in Ireland and uh, that happened in Scotland and we've got this thing that's uh, happening over here. And they're just reported as isolated one-offs for a day. And the media do not actually look at, the, at, the, uh, at the, these isolated incidents as part of some huge, awful condemnation of what we've been doing the last two years. Because this isn't statistics, these aren't numbers, these are people. And, the, you know, the, the truth will out. We will, we will, after an unspecified period of time, get to the truth. What, what troubles me and has troubled me from the beginning is the, is the fact that we are discouraged from talking about it, you know, openly. Mm. You know, the, the, mm. the, obviously, you know, when, mm. you, when you talk about, you know, the, the, the hepatitis spike that there has been and all the rest of it, you know, it, it begs and requires further research and understanding to get to the bottom of that. But while it's actually happening, ought there not to be a free and open conversation that considers all possibilities, you, you know, without any suggestion just bringing down opprobrium and condemnation, you, you know, as though you have the temerity yeah. to, to challenge what has been pushed as the, as the authority view. And I, I mean, the whole push from everyone, from Tony Blair to Piers Morgan, you, you know, dismissing anyone voicing doubts or admitting to hesitation as idiots. I mean, that's actually the word that was used. Yes. Idiots and cove-idiots. I mean, in what universe was that ever uh, a, an approach that was appropriate from authority figures? Well, I was absolutely astonished because I, I had some uh, vaccine widows, as I think of them, on a few days ago on, on the show. And so they uh, retweeted and Instagrammed their interviews with me. These are young women in their, in their 30s who've lost their husbands. You know, it's a brutal thing to become a widow at 32 when you've got a seven-year-old and a one-year-old boy. The, the, the reaction of all the sort of fact-checkers and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram is to put these health warnings that this is disinformation. So they're telling this young widow of 32 that her widowhood, the fact of her widowhood that she has to live with, is disinformation. And the, and the Blair, I was glad to hear you go on about Bill Gates because the, he's part of the expert class like Tony Blair. I don't have no idea why Tony Blair should be regarded as an expert or should be pronouncing on anything, never mind Piers Morgan. But all these guys, a, something entirely unexpected comes along. Uh, China releases it to 200 nations and territories around the world, and the response of the Western world uniquely is basically to shut down its economy and make everyone poorer and sicker. And then we're told that this unprecedented event and this unprecedented reaction to it uh, is the only acceptable opinion you're allowed to hold on it. That's obvious nonsense. As we now know, uh, the vaccines were, at the very least, oversold. And they aren't... They don't meet the minimum definition of vaccine. If, if you took a, uh, if you took a uh, vaccine for rabies and, and in the next 18 months you got rabies three times, you'd be thinking, wait a minute, that's not a vaccine. 
and and this no longer meets the definition of a vaccine and so this 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 big shut up uh, we've had this combination of uh, the state taking extraordinary powers, reducing freedom of movement, while out in the wider world, all these social media are also shriveling freedom of speech. Well, if you don't have freedom of movement and you don't have freedom of speech, there's actually not a lot left. They're the two core basic freedoms. Opinions are so polarised around this subject now, Mark. You know, you're, you're in one camp or the other, by action or inaction. Do you, do you see a way ahead? Mm. Is there any way to, to, to roll back, to roll back from this, this polarised uh, mudslinging that we find ourselves in? Because clearly, uh, you know, solutions require a better conversation than that which we have been allowed to have. Yes, I, I actually am quite hopeful because I think this has become one of those things that people talk about privately. In a sense, you know, I, I, the terrible uh, story that's just close to me a 14 year old girl dropped dead terrible thing but again you know the local newspaper uh reports the death and then moves on and people have begun to understand that these things are not talked about in the media but they talk about they talk about them in in private and i'm all i'm doing on my show and all dan's doing is, is actually saying, well, look, uh, Mrs. Scroggins at 37B Elm Street is talking about it, and I think we should be at least as free as Mrs. Scroggins. Just to, we're all stumbling in the dark, but you're never going to get out of the dark if you, if you don't even try and find a way ahead. Mark, it's a, it's a conversation that I could have with you for the next couple of hours, never mind the next couple of minutes, but I'm, I'm running out of time here. <laughs> but I just want to say more power to your elbow. Uh, I watch... Uh, with great reassurance, uh, you know, the, the, the guests that you've been having on recently being able to honestly tell their stories and, and to get their heartache and their suffering out, uh, you know, to where it might be understood and, and commiserated with by others. So keep up the good work and uh, I'll hope our paths cross again in the future. Thanks, Mark Stein. Earlier in the show, I talked about my concerns regarding proposals for a World Health Organisation pandemic treaty. A total of 194 countries, including the UK, are preparing to cede national sovereignty to the unelected and unaccountable WHO on the matter of future health emergencies. Joining me now to discuss the proposal is surgeon and commentator on matters health and medicine and friend of the show, Dr Tony Hinton. Hello, Tony. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure. You're a medical professional of many years' experience. Uh, how do you feel uh, about the prospect of having decisions about how we respond to medical emergencies in this country outsourced to an unelected body sat in Geneva? Well, I listened to your introduction earlier, and actually what I would say is that was a very good summing up. But it's actually worse than that. It's the World Health Assembly which is the decision-making body of the World Health Organization. They meet every year around about this time in Geneva. It's the first time they've met in person for two years because of COVID. And this is a change amendment to the international health regulations. And it's not just about pandemics. It doesn't just give the World Health, health Organization control over a pandemic. It allows them to call out a potential or actual health emergency. That could be all sorts of things. Potentially, of course, if the people that 
are very concerned about global warming and possible health effects, that could get the World Health Organization involved in those sorts of conversations. Now, what yeah. I would say is, has anybody heard Boris Johnson mention this? Or Sadiq Javid, the health secretary? Has anyone seen it discussed in Parliament? How many people in the public have heard about this? Now, the one good thing is that even if this does get passed between the 22nd and the 28th of this month, that's not the end of the story. It doesn't come in until 2024. And in fact, even countries that supposedly support the amendment, those countries have got six months to withdraw their agreement and stop that going forward. Whether it has to be unanimous, I've found that very difficult to get to the bottom of. The, the World Health Organization is very opaque in the way that it works. You, you, raise, you, raise, many, you raise many salient points there, uh, Tony, uh, not least the fact that it hasn't been discussed. You know, it's not just me, is it? You feel as if, it, it, while, a, while a population is on its knees with exhaustion, you know, having been through the last couple of years, things are major things, not not slight, major things are being slipped past a, a, a population that's exhausted. Now, now, now why would that? Say. Why is that? Why why is consultation and consideration about something as potentially affecting as this not everywhere? Why isn't this on the sides of buses? Well, I think they're in a hurry to do this for a number of reasons because, of course. A lot of these amendments that have gone in have come from the Biden administration. And if the next president of the United States is not of the same political persuasion, this may be very difficult to put through. So I think that's why they're in such a hurry. But just have a look at the COVID record of the World Health Organization, the things they told us. So first of all, they said this didn't spread person to person, taking China's word. Within weeks, that had changed. They said we didn't need to stop international flights. China stopped its domestic flights, but carried on its international flights. That was changed within weeks. Everywhere, they said, should lock down and follow the example of China, which Italy did and then much of the rest of the world. They said no masks were needed for the general public, I would say quite rightly, but within months they changed that. Eventually, they said countries should only use lockdowns as a last resort. So they continually changed their advice with no further medical evidence put forward. Let's just do a little thought experiment. Where would we be now if the World Health Organization had had the powers for the last two years that they want to take on? What would have happened in Sweden? We would not have Sweden with almost no lockdowns, a good economy, the lowest excess deaths in Europe to compare to. We wouldn't have had places like Uttar Pradesh in India that was very successful in fighting COVID with old-fashioned medicines like ivermectin, doxycycline, vitamin D and other antibiotics. 
everyone would have had to have just done exactly the same. Well, that's not good for science or medicine. The fact that we've got these countries that did things differently, we can learn from their experience and see who made the best decisions and Tony, make sure that those are the decisions we do next time. Tony, bear with me while I, while I bring the, my, my panel of, of guests in here. Keith, it's it's yeah. very interesting listening to, to Dr Hinton there, isn't it? That, that idea that rather than collectivise problem solving, that, it, that it, rather it be dispersed through individual countries who, who can confer and who can share information. But isn't it more likely that solutions are found by listening to as many people as possible rather than collecting all the decision-making in the hands of a few? Well, well clearly, uh, progress in the world is made by different people doing different things. And if we've all got to do the same, how do we know that's the right answer? Nobody actually knew what the answer was to this pandemic. And it, it, it's what we've learned through these other countries doing different things, such as Sweden, that there are alternatives. And I think that's possibly what also drove Boris Johnson to end the lockdown when he did. Because if you all do the same thing and it is catastrophic, you all die. That can't be right, can it? Mo, I know that, I, and I understand to an extent that you, you think we, we needn't perhaps fear the WHO in the way that I do. I, I hear that and understand it, but when you listen to Dr Hinton there, it is, it is troubling on many levels that there's this move for sovereign states to abdicate responsibility for decision-making, possibly because it's uncomfortable, so that they can stand behind and take shelter in decisions made by others. It's, as a direction of travel, I'm 100% in agreement with you and with Tony, it's a direction of travel that we don't want. We want that democratic accountability. Um, I think if you think about the reality of what happened in the pandemic, um, when it came to vaccines, all of a sudden we got vaccine nationalism. Even the EU didn't act as a coordinated block with all, with all their treaties and all their kind of agreements mm. to work as, a, as one unit. And, and you mentioned about Boris Johnson coming out of lockdown earlier. He did that for his own reasons because it was politically astute for him to do that at that time. But I don't think all the protests on the streets and the Canadian truckers and everything that happened in London, right, said Fred, I don't think that was for nothing. I think that did have an impact. So that's why I, 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 I worry about the direction of travel. I think we're right to bring it up. And as Tony, Tony said, you know, this is not on the, this is not being discussed in a referendum or it's not being advertised, you know, for free consultation. And when, I think, was it Richard Tyster to have a, a referendum on net zero in somewhere in the northwest, wasn't it? And that was shut down. So even the idea that we want, that we as a population should be able to freely debate these things is shut down. And that's the level at which I think we need to fight it. We need to fight for the, the, our right to kind of be able to discuss these things. Keith, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, well, I've got some very close friends who have not had any vaccination at all. They refuse. They're, they're Christians. They believe that Jesus will protect them. You can debate that if you want, but... That was their choice. If we've got the WHO saying, you must be inoculised, blah, 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 that's not right. That is living in a state of authoritarianism, which we don't want to be. Surely you have to be in control of your own body. You have to be allowed to make choices. And it would be dreadful if we lived in some 1984 state where we were told to breathe in and breathe out. Surely. 
Tony, uh, why on earth would you think that we would be contemplating uh, taking instruction from the WHO, which has so celebrated the Chinese model? You know, the, the most draconian measures out there. You, of, of, all, of, all, <laughs> of all the examples to not take and not follow, I would have thought it's China's. What does that, what well, does that remember... tell us about our leaders? Remember Dr. Tedros, who heads the World Health Organization, is not a medical doctor. He's a politician. He was the foreign minister of Ethiopia. And during that time, there were terrible wars going on in Ethiopia. And he's a very good friend of China. He was originally, I think, a member of the Communist Party. And what's being pushed via the WHO taking advantage of this recent pandemic, which actually the emergency now should be absolutely declared over. There is no COVID emergency anymore. But this is all about heading towards a world government. It's nothing to do with just health. It's all about politics. But of course, any country that wants to at any time can withdraw their membership from the World Health Organization, as happened with the United States a couple of years ago, and then President Biden rejoined. Yes, I know it's a deeply, it's a, I find it a deeply troubling uh, passage of, of uh, you know, path that we are uh, that we are on. It's a, it's a, a deeply disturbing, I think, sequence of events. Thank you so much for bringing your uh, light to it tonight, uh, Dr. Tony Hinton. We will speak again, I'm sure, in the future. Now, a kindly car dealer has opened his home to eight Ukrainian refugees. Martin Holton has a 16-room home in Warwickshire, and the space he once shared with just his housekeeper is now home as well to two sisters and their six children, aged from four to 14. Martin is with us now. Hello, Martin. Hi, how are you? Excellent, excellent story. Um, where... Uh, were your house guests living uh, before you were able to take them into your home? Originally in Ukraine, they were in Mykoliv. Um, that's where their hometown was. And when the war started, I think it was when it was eight days in, they suddenly realised that they needed to leave uh, for the sake of the children, uh, left the husbands behind and then uh, travelled over I think they caught four or five buses and the trains and got to the Polish border. Um, and then must have been quite frightening for them, really, because they didn't know where they were going, where they were heading to. Um, and then uh, they were in an apartment with 17 other people sleeping on the floor until the Homes for Ukraine system and another lady matched them up with myself. Did they witness fighting? I'm thinking of the children, I suppose, in particular. Did they, did they see any of the, of the conflict en route or, or as they were leaving Ukraine? Yeah, that's why they left. They started seeing the bombs and what have you. And that's on the eighth day, they decided it's time now to leave um, for the sake of the children. So they just they packed up and left. I mean, for them, to be honest, quite frightening to leave your home not realise where you're going to mm. by you're heading in the other direction of where the fighting's coming from, 
um, get to a border with your children, try and find somewhere to stay on limited funds and then match up with a family anywhere in the world, really, because they didn't know where they were going to end up um, and then ended up in England. And the, and the husbands and fathers presumably staying behind uh, as part of the defence of the country? Yes. Yeah, they're still there fighting. Yeah. They speak... They speak they, they, uh, I'm, I'm not privy to them speaking to the husbands, but uh, on f a few occasions I've heard them speaking to the mother and father who are in Mayakliv, which is quite close to where all the heavy fighting's going on. Um, and you can hear the bombs or the rockets going over the top of them while they're talking. But the, mo the mother and the father always say they're fine, they're doing some gardening, they're quite happy. But uh, I'm sure if you were there, it'd be a slightly different picture. Indeed. How, how hard or how easy was it to go through the process of bringing eight people, adults and children, to the UK? Um, pretty pretty horrendous, to be honest. The um, When the Homes for Ukraine opened, which was, uh, I think, on a Thursday, it opened at four o'clock, it was nine and a half hours to fill in all the applications. Um, and then the, originally we were told it was two days, five days, a week. It was five weeks to then hear that one of the applications had been turned down um, because that young girl, Vlad, wasn't, travelling with her mother. She'd stayed behind to look after her horses. So the other, the six of them had to travel here. We then had to apply for the mother. She's now left her horses in Ukraine and left somebody else to look after them. Um, and the daughter again, wait for that and then get them here. Which is hence why originally I was having seven, I've now got eight. Martin, I'm going to, I'm going to just uh, open this up to my, my guests here in the studio with me. Mo, it's Martin's here as our Great Britain tonight. It's whatever else you might think about geopolitics, yeah. it's only reassuring, isn't it, to hear about somebody just absolutely. turning an empty, their, empty, their otherwise empty and quiet home absolutely. over to and eight strangers. He's so, he's so, what I thought about Martin, he's so understated about it, isn't mm. it? It's just like, I've got the space, this is something I can do, I'm going to do a good deed, but without kind of uh, sort of basking in reflected glory. But I'd love to know, because he's gone from just living in this big house with his housekeeper, now to have lots of kids with all that energy and excitement. How, how's his life changed? Yeah, Martin, how, there you go, Mo's asking, what, what's it like? Haven't suddenly been suddenly been you've had your own invasion, <laughs> your own national sovereignty has been compromised. Um, I suppose it, in the mornings now I just hear the kids running up and down the corridors, which I wouldn't normally hear. Wakes the dog up. He, he's he's uh, obviously thinking who's that running around, but he's slowly getting used to it. Um, they're not a problem. I would urge anybody to do it. They're, they've, they've put an enhancement on my life. Um, they're all outside now in the garden. Um, as soon as the first um, six arrived, the, the only one of them can speak quite good English. They're all having English lessons. I need a, I need a job. They all want to work, all three mm -hmm. of them. They want to go to work straight away. And they want to go home. I'm sure if this war was over now, They'd be off. They'd be like, "Okay, can we get Joe to the airport? We're going home." I was going to ask they you. About... Don't... Sorry. I was I, I was going to ask you about long term 
long-term plans. So that, so that they are very much just in a in a pause. They're just in a, a sort of respite from what's been going on. And at the at the first opportunity, they'll be homeward bound then. Yes, I mean there's a, there's probably about two hundred in our local area, and they all meet up and chat. But they're all the same. They want they don't want to be here. They're here in, on necessity. They want to go home as soon as possible. Um, and if it was tomorrow, they'd pack up and go tomorrow. What will they'd be miss, going to, will you miss I don't them? know. Will, but will you miss them when they're gone? Yes. Yeah, would you? Yeah. That, truly, they are not, they don't put on me whatsoever. I go about my normal life. I go to work seven days a week. I get up, I go to work, they make the breakfast, they make the lunch, they make the dinner. They're not... We are all in the house. Fortunately, it's not a normal size house, so we can all go our own directions. Um, but they're not an imposition to me in any way, shape or form. As I've said before, they, they put an enhancement. They make me feel good. Um, and it feels good to look after them because they're very appreciative of it. Martin Holton, you are uh, you are my Great Britain this evening, and uh, just listening, as Mo said, to your, the understated way that you're describing opening your home uh, to to eight total strangers, making them welcome uh, in a time of need. It's a it's just a, a reassuring and uplifting story. So thank you for joining us, and and giving us a little insight into your uh, your unique experience that you're having at the moment. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. The US Supreme Court seems poised to overturn the 1973 landmark decision that made abortion legal. Hundreds of thousands of protesters are readying themselves to protest the move, uh, if indeed it comes to pass. Abortion is an emotional topic again on this side of the Atlantic. The Scottish Assembly has passed a bill to prevent pro-life campaigners making their protests outside clinics offering the procedure. But First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said the move poses, quote, legal complexities and says a further 18 months of research are required before the ban can come into force. Lois McClatchy is a communications officer for the UK branch of Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF a faith-based advocacy group opposed to abortion. And she joins me now to consider uh, developments in Scotland. Good evening, Lois. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Neil. First of all, uh, I, I hear and read the term buffer zones in relation to abortion clinics. What is meant by that term? So buffer zones are a policy designed to banish pro-lifers from standing within 150 metres of an abortion facility. And they are designed um, and campaigned for under the guise of reducing harassment. Now, as a woman from Scotland myself, you will understand that I'm very much against harassment against women in any circumstance. But fortunately, we live in a country where harassment is already illegal and police have powers to deal with that already. So what a buffer zone would it do in practice is actually banish pro-lifers from offering help, offering services that pregnant women may want to hear about who would want to consider all of their options. And even in some instances in London where buffer zones have already been put in place, they ban silent prayer, which causes immense concerns for freedom of speech. Why is it appropriate, can I ask you, for pro-life protesters 
to, to campaign outside premises uh, that are offering abortion services. Um, you know, what, what alternatives, if any, are being offered to the women, you know, by the, by the pro-life protesters? This is where we really have to listen to the stories of women themselves uh, who have benefited from having received this offer of help. Uh, there's testimonies posted online on a, from Be Here For Me, uh, where Alina Dalgariu uh, was one such woman in a situation where she felt very pressured to have an abortion because of her socioeconomic circumstances. She was abandoned, she was alone, and she had recently lost her job. She felt that there was no option for her other than abortion. That was until she turned up to the clinic and she received a leaflet about another option available. A, a charitable group were willing to uh, offer uh, financial support, practical help for Alina to keep her child should she want to. And Alina decided at the end of the day that she would make the empowered choice uh, to continue and, and to become a mother. Now to remove that offer of help from women is actually quite patronizing. It says that they don't want to hear about options available to them. Buffer zones at the end of the day are not pro-choice, it would seem, but no choice. Uh, Lois, bear with me. I'll, I'll turn now to, to guests that I have here uh, in the studio, uh, you know, to, to broaden out the, the conversation. Uh, Mo, pro-life protesters are often accused of being anti-women. Is that, is that, is there, are there grounds for, for that comment? I, th I think in the United States, this, you know, abortion was the original culture war argument, if you like. And it's it's sort of fitted so much neatly into that over the side of the Atlantic. It's not like that in the UK yet. It's very much seen um, within the confines of a health choice for, for women. It's kind of seen, you know, in those terms rather than being the culture war. But of course, we know if America sneezes, we catch a cold and it is coming here as well. I think the buffer zones around pregnancy clinics is, is really everything about abortion is tricky morally, everything about it. I think anybody who thinks that it, there's a black and white um, kind of argument here it is completely wrong. I think what Lewis is uh, arguing, Lois is arguing, is that it restricts her freedom of speech to be able to go and to persuade women who are about to go and take that decision not to do it and to offer other options. And whilst I, uh, I am such a in favour of freedom of speech, it is also it's at the point where the women have pretty much made up their mind. Mm. And I know Lois, Lois says she's got um, testimony and all the rest of it, but I think it's almost it almost becomes a private space when you go into that clinic, having made your decision, having made that quandary. There are there are there are no women that take that decision like that. You know they are really uh, so it is almost. But on the other hand, it is still a public space, and if pro-lifers want to be there uh, to make their argument, it, it, I think it's a very tricky one actually. Keith, what say you? Should should there is it a, is it an appropriate space for protest? In, in the vicinity, outside of, of the clinics. Would you, would you say that was right, that people speak freely and, and give their opinions there? Well, as I've already said, I'm a libertarian. I think you know, I'm a big supporter of freedom of speech. But no, I, I think uh, the way that those protests were done, very, very intimidating. This must be an awful decision for any woman to make, uh, to have to decide to have an abortion. And absolutely, they should be given all the options and even at the very last moment those options should be made very clear that there is an alternative and, and perhaps the details of certain groups should be given to the women and if it's not if that if that alternative isn't being offered up by the clinics then 
then from whence should it come? It well, should, it, it should be. It should, protest. it should be mandatory that the clinics do offer up those those alternatives, absolutely. But to, to stand outside the clinic once you've made that very difficult uh, decision and to be intimidated, it must be really, really difficult. And that can't be right. It can't be right to do that. But it is absolutely right that at every single stage, the women who are having to make these difficult decisions are given all the different opportunities and contact details of where they can go to get different advice. Lois, what do you say to that? Is that a, is that a compromise? If if it was a, 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 an absolute necessity that, that all uh, options and alternatives be offered up to, to women in that situation, would that would that mollify you, or would you continue to say that the that the, the presence or the protests outside the clinics should be should be allowed. Well, the, the, the practical and monetary and the, the support that is offered by these pro-lifers is second to none. It's, it's not something that's available um, just from, from the state, from anything else. It's really a huge extra service, uh, which is very much welcomed by many women who do decide uh, to, that they want to keep their child should they have that option available to them. Um, there's great... Um, evidence as well inside of Scotland. Uh, Compassion Scotland are a group that I don't uh, work with, but have done a great lo a load of research into what has been really happening outside these clinics. And they, through freedom of information requests, they found that um, in, at the fi in five of the key hospitals in Scotland, no incidents of harassment had really been recorded. Um, so although it seems, and although the media likes to play up uh, what is happening out here as a as a intimidating protest? A lot of the time, it's it's genuine offers of help and peaceful prayer uh, that is being banned, and that's not acceptable for women, and it's not acceptable in the context of a democracy either. What does it mean when First Minister Sturgeon asks for another eighteen months of of research? Is there any possibility within that of the bill being overturned? So the private member's bill is not yet accepted. So it's still in a, we're not in a state where we have buffer zones ruled out already. This decision has certainly not been made. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon has offered to share, uh, to chair a, a round table on the issue to come to a decision um, that will come down later in the road. Uh, but what Nicola has, what Mrs. Sturgeon has highlighted uh, is that there are human rights law concerns here um, about um, the freedom to, to speak and also to hear. Well, freedom of speech has two, has two ways. It's not just the pro-lifers who have the free speech to, to make these offers of help and to make these offers of prayer, but it's the women who also have the opportunity to hear uh, and censorship uh, limits that opportunity for them to make their own mind up. So there are serious human rights implications involved in buffer zones, and I think uh, they really go over the line and we shouldn't be stepping into that territory. Lois McClatchy, uh, advocate for um, uh, ADF, thank you so much for your time. It's such an, such an emotive uh, and a, a, a painful subject, I think, from, from whatever direction you come at it. Uh, but I'm, I'm very pleased to have heard your side, you, the, the alternative that you propose should continue to be there for women in that situation. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. It is so hard, isn't it? It's such an impossibly difficult situation. There's no... Everything never, about you know, abortion It's impossible is to think that there is a perfect answer, ever. There, and there isn't, because you are, in a sense, I mean, we could have a debate about when when life happens, is it a conception or is it when the fetus becomes viable and all the rest of it, but you are talking about the, the human right of a woman to be forced to go and have a baby that she doesn't want for whatever reason because it's dangerous emotionally, she can't afford it or whatever. So, you, so it is all, 
all the way along with this argument, there are moral choices to be made. I almost feel like with the buffer zones argument, though, because you can't, you don't want to have an abortion at home, let's not go back to those days, because you have to go to a clinic, mm. it almost becomes sort of like a de facto private space in a sense, because that's the place you have to go to once you've taken your decision. However, as we know, you know, we're, we're, we're in favour of, um, you know, freedom of speech and all the rest of it. And I do think perhaps if there are people kind of protesting and you've got bigger fish to fry, then you can perhaps block them out. I think that's what I do. <laughs> Isn't there the question of privacy? Don't you as a woman have the right to go to a clinic and that not be in the public domain? The fact that if there were protesters there, they could take pictures of you. You would see people see you going in. Surely you've got the right to privacy. It's a, it's a very, very difficult decision. And you might not want other people to know what you're, what you're going through. And so there's that privacy aspect. And at least the buffer zones enable women to attend these clinics and enjoy some level of privacy. Yeah, it goes to something essential at the heart of what it is to be human, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does, really. You know, bodily autonomy, of course, you know, the, uh, the bodily autonomy, uh, for me, is a, is a, is a fundamental, but, but, but at, at what point does, does the unborn child have bodily yes. autonomy? Yeah. There's, it's like a... It's a Gordian knot of complexity. It really is. That's why I think there are just no simple solutions. And actually, it's good to have these conversations. So in a sense, although it may pain me to say it, Nicola Sturgeon might be right that we need more conversation, more consultation about this. Um, because it does pay me to say that because I'm not a fan. <laughs> but I think um, it's a long time since, we, you know, I remember as a teenager talking about abortion, as a young woman talking about abortion and all the rest of it. It hasn't been on the public agenda for quite a while, not in the way it has since the kind of potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. So I think it is good that we're raising these questions, Neil. I think conversations at all time are the, <laughs> therein. The, the solutions to all our problems must surely lie, I would have thought. Moving on. The first Buchanan clan chief in almost 350 years is to be inaugurated in Scotland later this year. Buchanan clan members from around the world will descend on the historical seat at the Cambusmore estate in Perthshire for the ceremony. GB News Scotland reporter Davy Donaldson has the story. It's taken 10 years, but finally John Michael Bailey Hamilton Buchanan will become the new chief of the clan Buchanan. The millionaire aristocrat has had to wait almost four years due to the pandemic, but he will finally take the seat at a ceremony in October. There will be a throne which I will, or a seat that I will be sitting on. I'm not sure the throne is quite the right word for it. Um, there will be um, lots of tartan on display, lots of clansmen, um, and there will be a clan court where the sort of elder branch, the senior branches of the clan can gather together and we can discuss things. The Buchanan clan were heavily involved in the Jacobite rebellion, so have strong links to Bonnie Prince Charlie. Mike will take over from John Buchanan, the last clan chief who died in 1681 without leaving a male heir. And he's invited 300 members from Australia, Canada and the USA to join him at his home in Callender in Perthshire for the inauguration. And so to be able to go back to an ancient place to participate in a ceremony that has its ties and the origins of these original ceremonies going back you know, to the beginning of, you know, of uh, 1010, 1015 when we got started and before that the Picts and other cultures that were there is that it's, it's going to be moving. It's going to be it's going to be something special. I think it's because 
uh, the chief and his family have made such a big deal. I mean, they could have they could have just had a, 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 a family service. You know, they could have just brushed it on the carpet and gave, given each other a nod and a, and, a, and a title or something like that. But they've chosen to invest in this ceremony. They've chosen to really make a splash. And this is a this is a lightning rod to all clans across Scotland, to all all ancestral roots across the world. But, but you know, it's it's good to have history. It's good to have a place. It's good to connect. It's good to know where you came from. This is the throne of where the clan chief will sit for his inauguration in October. And as tempting as it looks, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to take a seat. Uh, it is spectacular craftsmanship and a complete coincidence. It's made by a firm six miles away who I happen to know anyway. And there are only, there can't be more than a handful of stonemasons in Scotland who can, who can do that sort of work. And one of them is right here and um, on hand. So yeah, they they were quite excited to do the job. They normally do sort of... Um, boring date bars above doorways and stuff like that and so this was something different for them. The ceremony is sure to be an enjoyable and memorable occasion as members of the Buchanan clan gather to celebrate hundreds of years of their history. David Donaldson, GB News. Fantastic, thanks for that David. Mo, do you understand the, 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 the evident emotion there from the, from the two, the, the American chap and the, the, the Australian chap, saying you're clearly still feeling that strong connection to the old country. Yeah, I think you could feel it. You could feel it kind of coming off the screen. I thought you were going to say, could I understand the accent there? Because I was kind of bending at some point. I mean, I think I've told you before, my mum's from Scotland mm. and I used to do Scottish dancing when I was a little girl and we had, a, we had our allocated tartan and all the rest of it. So all the traditions around Scotland and that deep heritage and that deep sense of, you know, uh, uh, attachment. Belonging. To, uh, yeah, belonging to that place. And I think um, that's something that if you've got that, you're incredibly lucky. I'm a bit of a wanderer. I don't necessarily have that massive connection to one place. And I sort of I yearn for it in a sense, you know. Do you have? Do you think that there's a, 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 a an equivalent? You know, obviously the the the, the connection that the expat Scots have to the old country is is legendary. You know, is there and should there be an equivalent in the, for the other nations of the United Kingdom? Well, I, I don't think you can say that the Irish don't have a connection with Ireland wherever they are in the world when it comes to St Patrick's what about the, Day. What about the English? Uh, yeah, not so much the English, actually. I think we, we tend to get consumed as being British rather than, mm. than English. But, you know, if there's a football match, you'll find out where the, where the Brits or the English are. Um, in my name, it's, my name is actually Scottish. They've actually named a football team after me, as happens, as you would know. Um, and... Uh, I, I think it's great. The only thing I'm, I'm surprised at, I mean, I always knew that government were very slow. It's taken us 50 years to, to do Heathrow and 50 years to build a, a nuclear plant, but it's taken them 350 years to appoint their new uh, clan chief. And I noticed that uh, one of his ideas is they're going to look at the future and what they should do in the future. Well, let's hope it, they can do it a lot quicker than uh, 350 years before they make their decisions. It's a, it's a long while to wait, isn't it? <laughs> I find it moving though. Every time I see, I've I've, I've been in the presence of, of people in in the Americas, uh, you know, who are descended from, and the pride, and you know, the tears in the eyes of, of people as they as they explain their connection to Scotland, you know, you cannot but you cannot fail to be moved because it's a genuine feeling. 
Yeah, and I think there is something about that diaspora as well and its connection to, to the mother country, if you like, that um, it, it's something beautiful as well because it's that much removed so they kind of see it afresh and with fresh eyes and feel that connection and they don't take it for granted. I, I think that's yeah. the thing. Five million Scots in Scotland, 50 million scattered to, the, yeah. scattered to the winds. So they say. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, as well, is that the Scots are a purer race. The, the English are a mishmash. I mean, we've, we've had everyone. We've had Vikings, we've had Normans. We've Virtually everybody's been here and invaded us. Obviously not since 1066, a bit like six, uh, 1966, really. But, the, <laughs> the, but they, are, they are a pure race and they're more identifiable as well. A Scottish name is relatively distinctive, whereas an English name like mine, Prince, is actually a Norman Norman name. So we, our identity is a bit more difficult to, uh, to define. It's wonderful stuff, it's wonderful stuff. It's, uh, bring a tear to a glass eye, I would say. Now this next one coming up, this is the kind of story that's close to my heart, close to anyone's heart. It's about treasure and gold and silver and all the rest of it. How can you fail to be moved and excited? A trio of metal detectorists uh, hope they'll soon be coining it in, you see what I did there, after hitting the jackpot in a field in Wiltshire. Thinking at first that the signals from their machines were coming from no more than metal tent pegs, they soon realised they had in fact unearthed a horde of Roman silver coins buried around the time when England was being settled by Anglo-Saxons around 1600 years ago. By the time they were finished, the three friends, Robert Abbott, Mick Ray and Dave Allen, had turned up more than 150 coins, all in pretty much mint condition. Welcome to the studio, Rob and Dave. Thanks Hello. For having, thanks for having us on. Where's Mick? He's working at the moment, unfortunately. He's a herdsman and uh, Good man. it's carving time, so unfortunately oh, he couldn't make it tonight. Of course. Now, Luke, obviously, tell me what, what, what thoughts were going through your mind as it started to happen? Maybe you start that one, Dave. Well, we'd actually been on site two weeks previous and we'd spent a week camping, um, on, actually on the field. Um, we'd spent time in that field and the rest of the fields on the farm. And it was in between the lockdowns and we knew that possibly we were going to go into another lockdown. So, so you detected on that site before? Yes, we have, yeah. Right. Yeah, um, and another, another hold has come from that site as well, wow. which I'll tell you about a bit later. Um, so two weekends after the week we'd spent there, we decided that we'd take the opportunity just in case the lockdown came in and we couldn't obviously get out anymore. And we were, we were actually camping on the field again, slightly different place, and we just stopped to have our breakfast. It was quite late, it was about quarter to 12. Um, Mick's, Mick's wife was going to see, his, uh, see her mother, so she had to leave. And that's, what, that's basically the reason we started uh, so late. Uh, Rob, Rob got his bacon and egg sandwich first, and he was finished first. Um, and he said, right, I'm gonna do a bit of detecting. Started to walk away from the table. Six paces, got, got a signal. First coin came out. Six paces. So, yeah. so it was actually you, Rob, who you, you struck silver first. Yes. Yeah, it's um, quite amazing. It's literally, I'd, I'd walked six or seven paces um, and two inches under the surface, absolutely pristine condition, Saliqua came out. Um, what was that word you used there? Saliqua. Uh, Saliqua. Yeah, it's a small Roman silver coin from uh, 300s, uh, the late 300s, 400s. Um, uh, yeah, so I turned to the guys, both sitting there, both eating their breakfast still, and I said, you're not going to believe the condition of this coin. 
So walked over, left me machine there, walked over, showed Mick, and Mick in his Lancashire accent come out and said, whoa, that's from a horde. So I said... As he well, always does. He always, always does. says it. If a it's nice a really good condition, out. he always says it. So I said, yeah, I'm going to go and find the rest now. Didn't think anything of it. Put the coin in my finds pouch and uh, went back, filled the hole in. Ah, the picture we're looking at on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's Amazing. all we had to keep them in because we, we wasn't... Like washing up bowl. Washing yeah, up bowl. Washing up bowl. We, yeah. we wasn't expecting it to come out. So, um, so I filled my hole in, picked my machine up, literally swung the search coil and two inches from the first one, out come another one. And I said, you're not going to believe this. Um, I've never seen two guys finish their breakfast so quick. Yeah, so, um, about. yeah, I said to Mick, I, I said to Mick, I think we've got the full bifter here, Mick. This is going to be the lot. This is, this is it. And how long did it take that? to amass the, the hundred and um, pretty much the rest of the day? Yeah, the rest of the day, we searched quite late into the evening. Um, we was getting tired. We, obviously, we didn't have anything else to eat for the rest of the day. We was just so excited, meticulously walking up and down. Were they scattered over a wide area then? Not a huge area, no. Oh. Or it was it, reasonably, large, reasonably large. It wasn't yeah. like an area like that. It's oh, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it was spread about 30, 30 metres down the field and probably about 20 metres across from the hedge. So if they were in... If they were, if you're calling them a hoard... Yeah. ..which suggests that someone had 150 coins all in a bag or whatever... Yeah, I can... Yeah. What, what would then explain how they end up scattered in that way? Farm machinery. Farm striking. machinery, yeah. I mean, I mean, some of the coins are quite badly broken, fragmented, um, so they've been struck. We've searched that field. We've been searching the farm for 10 years. Um, Dave's had a hoard on there already, um, uh, a, a hoard of Roman uh, vessels. Um, they were lovingly packed like someone had packed their prized possessions away in bubble wrap. These were packed away in brackens and wheat and stuff like that. Um, the... Uh, uh, we didn't. Uh, uh, we didn't open it up. We left it sealed um, because yeah. we realised that this quite is going to be quite a large bowl, which was upside down, and underneath there was a pewter plate which had basically sealed the two together, and there was contents inside. It turned out there was two sets of uh, Roman um, pans from a set of scales, and, and another copper alloy ve um, uh, vessel in there. So and and in what proximity to the to the find of coins? About, about thirty metres away, quite a way away. So what 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 story do you tell yourself then about what's happening there? You know, why is there a hoard of silver well, or, or metal bowls? The, the bowl the bowls. We we actually had about four or five months later. We we had some archaeologists come in and we actually dug an area. Um, we went down about four hundred mil, and then we started to get a few shards of Roman pottery. And then we went down to the depth that the, the bottom of the hoard had come from, was about half a metre, and pebbles started appearing. And they were basically in a straight line, straight end, a gap of about 900 mil, and then another, another set. And, and they basically were the foundations for timber beams, basically. And the archaeologists think that the, the vessels were actually buried in the... In the floor. In the door. In the, the door. doorway. Doorway, basically. in the threshold of the doorway. And, and the coins may be known, may the, be deposited by the same... Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. Both the same era. Uh, yeah, they both... Sort of um, they both buried towards the um, 402. The latest coin in the hoard is 402 AD. So they've got to obviously been buried after that, but before 410. But there was one 
grain of wheat, I think it was wheat, in the, oh, yeah. in the, yeah. in the vessel hoard, which has redefined history, has rewritten history, because um, archaeologists originally thought that the Saxons brought this wheat over with them to cultivate, um, but it's now proved, because this was buried by a Roman, mm. that, in fact, the Romans were planting this wheat and cultivating this wheat. About 150 years earlier. Yeah. So is the idea that, are we looking at an event that's quite dramatic? Yes, is it, definitely. You know, you've got the people of uh, Roman Britain yep. and the legions beginning to pull away because yeah. they've got other matters to deal with on the continent and then the Anglo-Saxons are getting sort of pulled into the power vacuum. Yeah. Are you seeing the behaviour of people who are worried about yeah. turbulent times, no banks, their eyes? No banks, no banks. hiding their money. Let's they, hide it. They're going to come back. Yeah. Obviously not, not, obviously not. And it makes you wonder, you know, this person has obviously buried his prized possessions, his money stash, um, thinking he's going to come back, but he's never turned up. And, and that's it. It's uh, 1,600 years later. We dig it up. And they're going to go to auction, is that right? That next is correct, yeah. Tuesday, yes. Yeah, next Tuesday with Noonan's um, of Mayfair. They're, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, we, we did the right thing. We declared them under the Treasure Act. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the museum... Couldn't afford, uh, couldn't afford them. Funds are a bit low, obviously after lockdown and stuff like that. So, um, so they were handed back to us, and we can't afford to give the the landowner half the value of the coins. So um, it took us it took us over a year to actually deposit them with the British Museum because, yeah. because of COVID, basically. What expectation might there be for value then? What do you think? Um, You're experienced in this. Yes, somewhere hopefully in the region of around about forty thousand pounds. There's 142 coins of auctionable condition. Um, some of the Miller ends, they've been, they've been stated that they are some of the best Miller ends that have, have been found of recent times because they're unclipped, they are in pristine condition. So, Where does this rank for you both in terms of, you know, the, 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 because it's not just the items which are yeah. fantastic, the coins and then these, uh, you know, these, these vessels, I mean, that, that's amazing, but the story yeah. that they seem to conjure up from 1,600 years ago. But, yeah. but, so where does that sit in, in your stories of... Top of it the is, it yeah, is. This, uh, it doesn't get any better than this. It really is. It's, uh, it, it's a fantastic find. It's, um, it's really... And the whole experience from finding it right the way through everything that's happened is, has been brilliant. It's, uh, I, I don't think it'll ever be topped. It's, uh, but the find itself is just... It's just been... From finding the very first coin and then... That's another one, another one, and then you dig a hole and two or three come out together. Um, absolutely brilliant, yeah. And, and for me, I mean, I've, I, I'm, I'm impressed by the value of things yeah. to, to an extent, but it's the stories that the items tell yeah. that, that moves me. So whether it be something made of silver or something made of, you know, some, a, a, a broken clay pot, whatever, it's the story that it tells. Yeah. And, and what you have discovered there is drama. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a, it's a moment of drama or a period of drama in a, from a turbulent period yeah. of early British history. Yeah, it's got to be... I mean, obviously, there was a lot of drama through the Saxon times with Viking raids and stuff like that. But when the Romans were leaving and they left that void, when the, arm, when the, the armed forces, basically, the soldiers left and went back to protect Rome and they left everyday people to fend for themselves and you've got marauding Saxons coming across um, 
it's going to scare the life out of you. I mean, you've, you know, it's, you've got to sort of hide your wealth away. It's just an amazing story. Uh, Rob and Dave, you know, thank you for bringing that. It's just a, a moment from 1,600 years ago is suddenly with us in the studio, all on account of a handful of coins. Yeah. It's wonderful stuff. And good luck with the auction. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Okay. Thank you. It's the stuff of science fiction movies, but astronomers have captured an image of a black hole at the centre of our galaxy. How extraordinary is that? Named Sagittarius A and located some 26,000 light years from Earth, it's the central point about which the Milky Way galaxy rotates. Space expert Andrew Lound joins me now to consider the significance of the discovery. Hello again, Andrew. Hiya, hiya. Not for the first time are we discussing matters astronomical. Good to see you. No, this is this is fantastic. I mean, the the the, the team of the New Horizons project uh, of the uh, Event Horizon project, which is essentially um, a group of te radio telescopes which link together, um, and when they link together, they can create the effect of a telescope the diameter of the Earth. Okay, so you get this huge resolution concept. Um, and they've already resolved a large black hole at the centre of uh, M87, Messier 87, which is a much bigger galaxy, and that was a huge black, black hole. But they really wanted to have a look at the black hole in the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And as you said, it's only 26,000 light years away. I say only, because that's relatively close uh, in, in astronomical terms. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's 4 million times the mass of our sun. Um, and for people who aren't fully aware, a black hole is an area of space which is very dense, um, there's a great mass there of material, and therefore there is, the gravitational forces are so strong that light itself can't escape. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, but you'd have to travel faster than that to escape the gravity field of a black hole. So obviously it's black for that reason. And surrounding it, you have interactions of dust and gas, uh, which get very excitable because of the gravitational forces there. And they glow, of course, which is quite important. That's what we can see. And the telescope has been able to focus in at the centre of our galaxy and see the centre, the focal point of our galaxy itself. What is the black hole? You know, you talk about it being a, 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 a particularly dense part, place in space, but what is in yeah. there? You know, we can't see it because light itself can't, can't reveal no. the interior. So what's in there? It's break, it, what is happening is when, when matter falls into it, the matter itself is breaking down back to the atomic structure, the very basic atomic structure of what it is. We'd like to know exactly the physics of what goes on in there. But to be honest, the gravitational forces are so strong, we, f we simply don't fully know. But what you're having is all the matter that it is sucking in, that's dust, gas, physical stars themselves will be ripped apart if they get too close here, such as the power of the gravitational forces, that they'll be all broken down into their basic atomic structures, back to those primordial components. I, I had, How I it had formed is quite interesting because the original idea of black holes, which we see in other parts of the galaxy, um, seem to have been formed when a massive star, much more massive than our sun, collapses in on itself. When they collapse in on itself, it sort of pushes everything under gravitational forces together. It sucks more material in 
And of course, then it reaches a critical phase where light can't escape, and that becomes a small black hole. Black holes at the centre of galaxies, however, are more interesting because we now think that the possibilities are that these are primordial black holes formed at the very beginnings of the universe itself. At the beginnings of the universe, you had all these wonderful materials beginning to form. Hydrogen being the most abundant formed very much first. But you had these areas of, of clouds of gas, so dense were the clouds of gas that they collapsed in on themselves. And these normally form stars, but they were so much material, they actually formed primordial black holes. Now, the rest of the gas sort of surrounded these black holes. The energy was so fantastic, it sparked off the formation of the first stars, which were orbiting the black hole, pulled around and formed the very early galaxies. So we could be looking at a very, very ancient object indeed. And the new Webb telescope, which is now being calibrated, that will actually start to look for these very distant black holes in the universe as much as anything else. And being an infrared telescope, it will be able to better detect the surrounding heat, superheated gas and dust. I mean, what's Oh, sorry, carry on, yeah? No, I was just... So does every galaxy have a black hole? Is that why a galaxy exists? Because right at the beginning, a black hole formed and then the, the galaxy gathered around it like, you know, like dust around a magnet. Like yeah, this is what seems to be the, the present case we're going. We never really thought that at first. The idea was, in fact, we thought star clusters were sort of coming together and then the dying of stars, which then they form black holes and these black holes merge and form super black holes. That may not be the case now. I think you're absolutely right. We may be seeing that the primordial black holes were the ones that actually formed these galaxies in the first place. And, of course, the galaxies then actually merge together. If we look at Andromeda, the great spiral, which our galaxy will collide into in billions and billions of years time that actually has two black holes at its center actually moving around each other and that's because that's the core of two galaxies which have come together which is quite phenomenal really when you think about it so yes it look it's beginning to look now these primordial black holes help form the galaxies and because this comes on the back of another great discovery this week where they actually nasa have produced the sound of a black hole sound waves of course have to propagate through a medium water air or gas and apparently the gas surrounding the black hole was vibrating and therefore they could record the sound of a black hole tens of thousands of years ago. Absolutely fantastic. I've got guests in the studio. Uh, bear with me. Keith, these are stories that for a brief moment, while someone like Andy's talking, I can hold on to the outside of understanding them and then I can feel it getting away from me. These, are, these stories are about the very earliest moments in, in the creation of our universe. How do they move you? Well, I find it all incomprehensible and actually it hurts my brain when I start to think about it. I mean, really, my, my, my knowledge of the, of the galaxy goes back to 1960 when they invented the chocolate bar. And that, that is about my limit. But uh, I was quite worried because uh, it's this Dr Eunice who uh, actually found this black hole. He's very happy, but... How can you be happy about finding the thing that's actually eventually going to consume you? It's a bit like saying you're very happy that you've seen a shark two miles away. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's actually... Uh, Andrew, is that, is that the case? In the fullness no, of time, will our galaxy not in this be case. swallowed? No, not in this case. The black hole at the centre of, of our galaxy is quite important because it helped, it's helping drive the systems around. Black holes, if they do form relatively local, could actually consume us. Fortunately, there are no stars of enough mass 
to um, collapse in on themselves and form black holes that will eventually swallow us. We will be destroyed in probably four and a half, five billion years time when our sun actually dies and uses up its actual fuel. It'll never become a black hole it'll become a white dwarf star but that in that process of when it expands before it contracts again will actually destroy the earth in about four and a half billion years time so that's the cutoff point for us so we don't need to worry about any local black holes at this moment in time um and our entire galaxy when it does collide with andromeda by the way in billions upon billions of years time will be probably the end of both galaxies interestingly enough Mo, the energy radiating from Andrew Lowne there when he talks about that subject. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, and we caught that glimpse there of the of the of the light around the black hole. It, it's quite something to it hear really these is. stories. And I, I had been following because I think the, the discovery of the supermassive black holes at the centre of every galaxy is quite relative it's quite recent. Mm. But I'd not known what Andrew was talking about there about them being primordial. So I'm dying to know how does that change our concept of A gravity oh. and, and B um, what the future of the universe? Because that's the fact that they're primordial black holes is surely quite revolutionary. Andrew, do you it? want to take that on? Do you want to take on? Yes, the, yes. The, the, the yes, it is revolutionary. The formation of, of galaxies, and that's what's really important. We, we, as we said, we assumed the black holes seemed to be formed after galaxies were sort of coming together. It doesn't seem to be the case now. So they actually quite important. Um, regarding gravity, the whole universe is powered by gravity. Everything is gravity. Even our um, galaxy itself, as a, I mean, let's take it, okay, the planets move around the sun thanks to gravity of the sun. The moons going around each of the planets is held by the gravity of those particular planets. The gravity of all the stars interact with each other. The stars in the spiral arms interact with the gravity of the black hole pulling them around. Our galaxy then interacts with the gravity of another galaxy, Andromeda, and then you have clusters of gravity. So gravity is powerful. That doesn't change anything from our view of the way gravity works. What does change here is the way galaxies began to form form from primordial um, black holes. That is the big change. And a, we have to rethink now how we think the universe and the structure of the universe has formed itself from these primordial black holes from these early days when hydrogen formed. Uh, and that is really quite fundamental. It doesn't change our look on gravity because gravity still is the laws of gravity still apply, except that we now have to sort of think that the, the black holes came a little bit earlier than we anticipated. Andrew Lowndes, space expert, I'm going to have to go and lie down somewhere quiet <laughs> and review <laughs> some of what you have just said, because my head is in a mess now. <laughs> but the, just the idea, primordial black holes, that's, that's going to be my yeah. takeaway from yeah. tonight's conversation. Thank you, Andrew Lound. We will speak again. Thank you for having me. Astonishing adventure from space and time. A species... I don't know how we keep, I don't know how we keep these, uh, these subjects apart from one another. A species of snake capable of growing up to six feet in length has established itself, apparently, in countryside around Colwyn Bay in North Wales. The Aesculapian Iscul snakes, I hope that's right, a species that was native to Britain uh, at a time before the last ice age, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, are descended from escapees from a zoo in the 1960s and 70s. Known to feed on prey as large as rats, they are non-venomous, and not thought to pose any danger to anything larger, and certainly not to humans. Tom Major is a PhD student and a host of a popular science podcast, Herpetological Highlights, and he joins me now. Uh, good evening, Tom. Thanks for being with us. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me, Neil. This is quite a story. I mean, to, to, 
how how likely is it that the the landscape around Colwyn Bay is now being prowled by six foot long snakes? Yeah, I know it's it's um I think it's it's quite a surprise to a lot of people to hear that there's this quite large species of snake. I have to say that um I've never actually personally seen one six feet long. That would be a monster snake i think the biggest i've seen is probably closer to four feet long in wales you do get some up to that size in their native range um but yeah it, it is a surprise to a lot of people but as you said you know um they do have a history on our british isles and um yeah i think even people who live locally in colwyn bay many of them don't realize that these snakes are actually there so it does come to a bit as a bit of a surprise but um by and large local people are actually quite excited to have the snakes uh, living alongside them and are people reporting encounters at all. There's talk there about them having uh, the, the original uh, examples escaping in the 60s and 70s from a, from a local zoo. Uh, do, are there reports of, of, these, uh, of these snakes turning up in people's gardens or homes or anywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the snakes themselves, they're extremely cryptic animals. So they are quite fond, you know, they'll go in old stone walls, they'll hide out in people's compost heaps. Occasionally, they'll go into the roof spaces of uh, people's houses. So yeah, the, we do get reports, particularly this time of year. At the moment, it's actually the breeding season for the snakes. So they've just emerged from hibernation last month. They're starting to warm up. They've had some meals and now they're thinking about mating. So this is kind of the prime time right now where the males are cruising around looking for females. So people do encounter them. People see them maybe crossing the road. And as you said, um, the Welsh Mountain Zoo, who support my PhD, people who are visiting the zoo, a large part of the snake's range is actually the zoo itself. So you sometimes get calls on the radio that someone's seen a snake and then, yeah, I just go running. Now, you say that um, they're not likely to be more than four feet in length in Wales, but that the species could, in its natural, in, in an area better suited to it, could be as much as six foot. What would inhibit its growth in Wales? Why, why, do they, why are they so much smaller than their potential? Well, in all honesty, I think um, it's a smaller population, so you're less likely to have those like massive individuals. Um, it could be that the weather is a factor. I wouldn't say that confidently. Uh, it could just be that I haven't encountered any actually big, big giant snakes. With snakes, they grow throughout their entire lives. And so the largest individuals will be the oldest individuals. And there's a lot of threats to these snakes in their little area in Colwyn Bay. Um, you know, there's lots of roads, there's lots of hedge cutting machinery, there's lots of predators which eat them. So um, it could just be a case of I haven't encountered one that big, but I would be surprised if there were any sort of six metre, six, six feet giants. How, uh, how many are there likely to be of that, that, that population in, in Wales? So, yeah, I've been doing a mark recapture study on the population for the past four summers. This is the fourth summer now. And my best estimate is around 70 adults at a given time. And then... Every year they're breeding successfully, so I estimate there's about 120 juveniles on a given year, but many of those won't survive to adulthood. Um, they're very, very small. They're only about the size of an HB pencil, so lots and lots of things eat them. Um, one of the members of uh, staff at the zoo has actually seen a blackbird trying to take on a baby Escalapian snake. And you can see there, that image, that snake's, I think, about two years old, so that gives you an idea. They have a very slow growth rate. Um, it really depends. Their growth rate's also highly variable depending on how much food they actually find, so... These big individuals that um, were pictured just now, they could easily be 10, 15 or 20 years old. Mo, it's fantastic, I think, to know that there are, that out there in our landscape, there are creatures that we, we don't even know they're there. 
Yeah, isn't that exciting? I like the fact Tom's really excited that he, he wants to see a big snake. I'd, be, oh. I'd probably be the opposite. But I do. I remember feeling quite disappointed as a child learning that there weren't very many snakes in this country. It made us seem not very exotic. So I think this is quite an exciting story, but I think that's right. I mean, the fact that we're always discovering new species and they can present us with all sorts of areas for research and all the rest of it is and, very exciting. And isn't it lovely, Keith, that they were, they were among us tens of thousands of years ago and then you know became extinct for whatever reason and now they're back I find that I find that quite a quite a heartening story yeah I mean being a politician of course uh, I'm used to having lots of snakes around me usually more than five foot tall but uh, no it's fascinating isn't it and what I'd really like to see though with with all the modern technology we have is perhaps bringing back oh, something you. like the, the mammoth. I understand they're looking for the mammoth. I am absolutely with you there. Uh, Tom Major, thank you, thank you so much. That's I, I love that. That's a, a that's a story that I could talk to you endlessly. The, the ever uh, enriching story of our of our natural flora and fauna. I could talk about that with you for hours. Thank you for bringing it with uh, to us this evening. Thanks for listening to Neil Oliver Live, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. I'll see you next time.